The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hello and welcome to Season 1 of Novel Dialogue, a podcast that brings novelists and critics together to explore the making of novels and what to make of them. I'm Arthi Vade. And I'm John Plotz. And Arthi, we've lived together virtually for this whole season, but now we're actually in a virtual room together. It's great. And yes. um, so we're going to look back. This is sort of episode nine of our eight episode season. We're going to look back at an amazing season of conversation. So drawing them together, but maybe also teasing them apart a bit. Exactly. Um, so um, can I, I'm going to just jump in, Arthi, and ask you um, what role in this very varied and interesting set of conversations, what role do you think humor or lightness played in the conversations? My favorite takeaways were when novelists joked about their process, like George Saunders comparing novel building to piling yurts or novel writing to yeah. yurt building. And I just thought, well, in one sentence, he summarized what in, you know, really kind of technical terms made a lot of sense. But that's the takeaway, you know, like a novel is sort of like a yurt. And that's true. Yeah. So we had this tactical decision to put kind of a comical question at the end because we asked people about their favorite treat and that was really something that got people to open up but we put it at the end um <laughs> so you know there were a couple of conversations like for example the conversation between bruce robbins and orhan pamuk that were pretty um high toned throughout and then when he got to talking about french fries he really <laughs> opened up around french fries so yeah. um it's interesting i completely uh, agree with what you're saying that the humor was kind of a crack that allowed us mm -hmm. to kind of let some light in. Um, yeah. But maybe maybe we needed a, maybe we needed a stand up moment at the beginning. It's possible too. I wonder if um, it's it's a tough balance, right? Because that signature question, uh, the novelist has been talking for a while at that point, and they yeah. are, I think, ready uh, to to be silly. You know, they've already proven themselves serious and they're just ready to be silly. Yeah. But if we could get them sillier earlier, that could be interesting. Yeah, yeah. no, you're totally right. Because it's the opposite of an MC warming up a crowd with some jokes, because then the message is, oh, well, you know, relax and enjoy the show. But in, in a way, the conversation is not, I don't think the novelists treat it as relaxed. They treat it as engaged, you know, they're, oh, they're, yeah. they're talking about their lifeblood, basically. Yeah. Mm hmm. And, you know, I think novelists um, are being called on more to do this of late. Like uh, you would ask me at one point, I think, are novelists better on the page than, you know, in the studio? And I was yeah. thinking about that, too. And I thought, and this is after a season, so I have some time to reflect after talking to, you know, many different novelists. Um, yeah. I wonder if that was our critical insularity showing a little bit, like thinking novelists are better on the page, because when we meet them in real life, they don't always want to talk in the same idiom and on the same terms that critics want to talk about on, amongst themselves. And so I'm, yeah. I'm reflecting on that and thinking my instinctual answer was maybe, yeah, they're better on the page. But then I thought, well, after this, this whole arc of a season, I'm thinking more about my what my expectations were from novelists in conversation as you know, when I was thinking purely as the critic talking to other critics. 
Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I actually really liked, Arthur, I meant to say this to you earlier. I, I really liked the question you asked George Saunders about the making of his audiobook, which I guess was a kind of composite, like cast of thousands yeah. production. Because yeah. I 100, that, 166. He knew the exact number. <laughs> 166. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Because right, because it 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 does go back to a different day. I mean, Dickens thought this about his audiences too. And Dickens spent a lot of I mean he spent like 15 years of his life just performing his books right on stage. Yeah. So it, it it speaks to that way in which oral engagement has this dimension that, you know, you know, those of us who came through a literary critical upbringing that was shaped by modernism, we tend to downplay that element of the non-page aspect. We definitely had some novelists read, right? Read right. passages from their works as part of the show. And they're gorgeous readers in a lot of different cases. I mean, yeah. Helen Garner is a pleasure to listen to. Yeah. Uh, and I'm wondering if when she read from her books, if you heard them, the way that you read them in your mind or did she did her reading style add something for you that's a great question so i'm really glad that the podcast is made up of that like diegetic sound which seems so different from the conversation that follows but i have to admit that i was basically so sort of nervous or fixated on the process that that her reading i couldn't really sit i, I should go back and listen to it now again now that we have them as finished pieces um because it was hard for me to take in but yeah what yeah what how do you think about that what how do I, you I loved it um you know madhuri vijay read from the far field and once she read it i I heard Shalini differently, actually, yeah. but and I don't want to say that her voice has solidified my understanding of the character, but she activated certain aspects of the prose that I think then all of a sudden became sort of like pronounced for me the the sharpness, the sort of acerbic aspect of Shalini's personality was was highlighted, but it also just the awareness, right? This is a character who is writing with an awareness that's not cynicism, but that is really, mm -hmm. really clear eyed about what she has witnessed and what she has to make sense of. I just thought her voice captured that tone. Yeah, yeah, that, that's really interesting. I mean, it's so, you know, I'm teaching, um, I'm not teaching the death of the author, which I know you're, you, you uh, alluded to in one, in an email you sent me, but I'm teaching Foucault's what is an author. So I've been thinking about that relationship between um, text and author, because Foucault makes this claim that like um, our insistence on authorship and authority is a way of damping down the possibilities of the text, not opening them up because it, it gives us kind of another critical yoke that you can throw around the words of the novel. But of course, what you're saying makes me think a different thing, which is just that, you know, having the writer inhabit them, it's not like it provides the correct meaning of the words on the page, but at least it, it lets you kind of go off at a different angle in terms of wh what those words do when they're spoken aloud. Exactly. And I think, you know, if, if maybe you're a student, uh, you want to give the author the final say because you might, you know, associate that authority with the final word. But none of the writers we talked to ever wanted to be the final word on their yes. novels. I mean, that's such a defeat if you're a writer, I think. Yeah. I'm not the final word. You, reader, complete my project, you know? Yeah. I can't exist with, like, the, the, the work can't exist without you. And so I think having the novelists read, but also reflect on really open and generously about what, what the novels were doing and really often declining 
to offer interpretations, sort of ceding that to someone else. Yeah. It was nice to have all together in, you know, a 30, 40 minute episode. Yeah. Right. Because you can see the author not as authority, but as guide. I mean, you know, that's a, that's a word that came up, I think, in, in Oka's and Madhuri's episode. Just guide, you know, it's a little bit of a different position. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I really pushed Helen Garner on the quality of music, like what her relationship to music was, because I was sort of looking for, oh, well, what are the dominant metaphors that define this? And, you know, she has a famous novel called A Children's Bach, and she has so many people who play piano. And it was interesting. She just kind of sidestepped it like she didn't want. Yeah, I think you're right. It's a, it has to do with not wanting the final word. It's wanting to be. Um, yeah responsible but not answerable something like that like you know like there but not there to mobilize you behind their ideas but just to make their ideas present to you and then see what happens like see get it completed in the reading process right yeah you know i think and this is not to say they didn't have strong opinions right i mean yeah. i talked to you know kelly and teju cole kelly rich and teju cole and Teju has opinions, trust me. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he yeah. feels very strongly about Bach, about Dickinson, about a whole host of, of writers, musicians, right. artists. But it doesn't mean that that voice is the one that he's going to impose on his own work. And there's something beautiful about having strong opinions about other people's work, but not wanting to somehow dominate your own work, you know? Yeah, totally. George Saunders had a kind of funny way of talking where he would say these most profound things about the effects he wanted to achieve. And sometimes he would say, now that's the truth. And other times he'd say, and then that's just a bullshit. You know, yeah. I was just trying to achieve this effect. And if it had a philosophical point, I guess I'm just lucky, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was but, totally, that was a revelation to me because, you know, I, I mean, are, did you have to look up the word Bardo when you read his novel? Oh or yeah. Did, yeah. I did I mean, not I did know not, Bardo in advance. Yeah. And I think I misunderstood it initially. I actually misunderstood the bardo. Like I thought it was a physical place and it took me a while to realize, oh no, it's a kind of purgatorial. It's right. really a duration of time more than anything else. Right. And, and I thought he would go there. You know, I thought, you know, I once talked with Ursula Le Guin and she was very happy to talk about, you know, thinking through Taoism as it appeared in her work, mm -hmm. but he didn't touch on that stuff at all. He mentioned he's a Buddhist, but he didn't really right. pursue the notion of there being ideas within the novel. Oh, well, you know, I think that he talked about Buddhism much more in response to how he thinks about his own writing process and its relationship yeah. to meditation and the parallels he can draw between how he feels when he is in a meditative state and writing as a kind of intuitive state that also entails deep control and iteration of certain kinds of practices. Yeah. And so yeah. that's where I felt Buddhism really informed his idea of his own process, where spirituality and Buddhism informed the novel. We didn't get, no, we, we didn't talk about that as much. We talked much more about historical fiction. Yeah. Yeah. No, but that's really helpful. And also, I think you're really right. And I think practice is what I was thinking of, too, when I was thinking about people like Robertson and even with Helen Garner as well, that that um, how the practice occurs is of interest to them. Right. Um, would, wouldn't you compare that to to uh, like actors talking about their performances? They really don't want to talk about the movie, but they'll talk about how they got into character and decisions yeah. they made because the effect that they achieved was yeah. 
for us to enjoy, but yeah. they're never a part of that effect. Yeah, totally. You know, <laughs> I mean, they, they don't want to feel it too. <laughs> right. I, I wrote a chapter about Willa Cather and opera once for Song of the Lark. And so I wanted to talk to some opera singers. And I talked to this amazing woman who told me, she's a soprano, and she told me that when she's singing badly, she can hear her voice and it sounds horrible. But when she's singing well, she doesn't actually hear anything. It's just like if she's hitting the notes right, they just disappear. It's like perfected tone. And that sort of resonates, you know, that notion. Yeah, that, absolutely. Yeah. I was going to ask you too about whether um, having, you know, done recall this book and, you know, hosted another podcast prior to the dawn of COVID, um, do you find that your experience of podcasts has changed in the pandemic era? I feel like mine has just exploded. I, I, I yeah. feel the podcast is the pandemic form, honestly, but, but you have a, a a longer history. So yeah, I hear from you. It's true. I've been into podcasts for a while. And when we started recall this book, we were obsessed with the notion that we really had to all three get into a studio together in order to make the conversation it was a three way conversation. And we had a tiny studio at Brandeis. And when I think about it in the era of COVID, you could get 0.2 people into it, you know, it's just <laughs> like, a, it, it, you know, and we always made jokes, it was it basically feels like kind of a womb from a science fiction movie. And and we loved that. I mean, it felt incredibly warm. And we also did something, Arthur, that you and I have never done, which is such a bummer, which is we had a, a monthly happy hour that was oh, associated nice. with it, you know, so we would all go drinking together. So there was a lot of attempt to create in person conviviality. Um, and maybe in retrospect, that was a little nostalgic, you know, we were using a we were using an older kind of physical presence in order to jumpstart the presence we wanted to create in the conversation, right. because of course, everybody listening to it is li mm -hmm. was listening in exactly the same way that people listen now. But we right. somehow felt like we needed physicality in order to make the first thing work. And whereas you and I like have never been in a room together since 2012, you know, <laughs> I, mean, I think like... we were in an elevator for five seconds together past that. I, I don't remember what year, but I definitely uh -huh. ran into you in an elevator. At some That's time. really funny. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Good. Yeah. yeah, but yeah. <laughs> No one would know we weren't best friends. So, yeah, right. <laughs> and I, I honestly feel like the relationship. Um, I'm totally for the resumption of in-person events. So I feel bad saying this, but I feel like we have developed a real friendship by working over Zoom together and Slack together and all these yeah. different platforms. And yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, I have no, um, you know, I don't think I would draw that much distinction of between the conversations we've had, but I attribute that solely to the fact that we're often in a, in a virtual room together, just the two of us. Right. If we were in a large, you know, webinar or even a, a seminar, that yeah. would never have happened. You know, it's just us. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And so that sort of speaks to something that we were trying to create. And I think I really feel like in retrospect, the smartest thing we did about the setting together, setting up the podcast is it's kind of like two plus parentheses one, like, in other words, it, we want the critic and the scholar to be talking to one another. But then there's always the potential for there to be a third wheel. And just to your point of like, not a webinar. So it, it gives it something I don't know that I can't, it's hard to sum up, but it's kind of like an impromptu sociability, which is sometimes the two people can just go. Yeah. Um, like Orhan and Bruce, just they know each other really well. So for much of that, I was just like a happy onlooker. 
And then sometimes it's more like, oh, no, wait, but there's a stranger here that we have to talk to as well. Um, Right. Yeah. And also, given that we were under the constraint of always being virtual, I mean, you asked, was it a happy accident that the show ended up international? Yes and no, right? I mean, we never once questioned the matter of distance because it wasn't something we had to worry about. Everyone was going to be in their respective homes, which suddenly opened up Scotland and Hawaii and Australia. and. Maybe I'm wrong, but I sort of believe that one of the, if I can even say there's a silver lining, one of the silver linings of the pandemic was that when those, once those places were opened up, people were in isolation and ready to talk. Yeah. You know, they wanted to stay on sometimes after the session was over and just like chat. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I agree with that. And then, and so then the interesting thing becomes, and you know, you, in, in a way, actually, okay, so Arthi, let me introduce a final topic that we hadn't discussed, which is the question of how long uh, our episodes were oh. or are. You know, because we were so sure that this sort of half hour to 45 minute length, or maybe, do we have some that are 55 minutes? But but we were pretty sure that we knew we wanted a kind of, let's say, medium-sized podcast, as opposed mm-hmm. to, you know, the sort of news snippet, you know, New York Times Daily 12 minutes versus the between the covers three hours we were right. sure about this medium length yeah and were we right to be so sure like do, did we did we set it at the right length or yeah so i definitely uh changed my mind over the season through exposing myself to so many more podcasts and realizing that many podcasts weren't as modular as i had suspected right mm-hmm. i mean and I noticed this happening with TV too, as it moves to Netflix and other kind of digital platforms. Oh yeah, interesting. Right? There's no need to have a thirty, a twenty-two minute episode with yeah. eight minutes for commercials. Yeah. Because no one's enforcing that at a broadcast level anymore, and yeah. so you can make the episode the right length uh, through your own kind of editorial control. Yeah. And. I also was watching episodes in certain series just get longer and longer. Yeah. And we were debating whether that was also a kind of symptom of people alone at home or trying to retrieve some alone time and just wanting to be amongst some voices for a little yes. longer than usual. Right. Right. Exactly. A kind of ambient yeah. togetherness. Yeah. yeah. So I definitely uh, have been so you, less you strict. Made- you made an, a, another interesting point about it, Arthi, which is that you thought maybe there was a kind of um, a legitimation thing involved in going longer, which surprised oh, me. Yeah. But it made it made sense when you unpack. Yeah. Do you want to say you want to make your point? I thought it was interesting. Oh, point. right. Well, I think if your aspiration is to be taught in a classroom or, you know, yeah. put on a syllabus, then there might be more substance to being a longer show. Right. And you also. Um, might think it adds heft to a new medium. If you can right. talk for 90 minutes about the big issues as opposed to 28. I was just thinking how <laughs> ironic it is that you as a modernist noticed the Victorian tendency of podcasts, whereas I as a Victorianist <laughs> actually like think about them as pre- preeminently modernist. Like I think of them as like on the Willa Cather model of like, you know, you take the words away and you only, you know, right. you, you strive for economy of form. Like the, right. the, the cutting is the art. Um, Yeah, well, I have, I guess I'm a realist in this, but when I'm editing the podcast, I really try to make the stitches disappear. Like I've been aiming for transition, seamless transition. It's not easy, Uh, but I haven't been going for the 
fragment short against our ruined style. Yeah, all. yeah, yeah. No, no, I wasn't thinking so much about content. No, I agree with you about making these seams invisible, actually. And I think it's, um, I've heard from a lot of our guests from Recall This Book that they really appreciate the seamlessness of the, mm -hmm. like they almost feel like they're listening to a different version of their own voice when they hear how we choose to stitch them together. So mm -hmm. yeah, I'm in favor of that. Definitely. Okay. But but no, but more the point that you might get authority from the ability to simply go on and on. Um, and of course, we're both oh, college when you put professors. It that way. So, yeah. When you put it that way, I see what you're getting at, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. But then there's another side, isn't there, which is which goes to the question of like the warmth of the podcast that you were me mentioning in the kind of coldness of our pandemic is, OK, fine. On the one hand, anything that's five hours long is intimidating and it's an accomplishment to do it. But on the other hand, I think people's relationship to podcast is one of immersion, you know, that they mm -hmm. want the voice there with them. And they don't like, I feel like when I edit these podcasts, I want every minute to be doing some work. But there's some level on which people listening to podcasts kind of want it not to be work, right? I mean, they want right. it to be something else. So yeah, yeah, right. I think it's close versus ambient listening, which, you know, is oh, something that yeah. I feel constantly when I listen to podcasts, because yeah. my relationship to podcasts, when it's successful is I'm doing something else, but yeah. I've become so absorbed in it that I continue yeah. doing the thing that I would have stopped otherwise. Yes. Right. So it keeps yeah. me exercising longer because I want to know the rest. Yeah. Or, you know, I stay out waiting in my car for it to be over, yeah. <laughs> even though I should be going inside. And right. so that to me is the sign of an absorbing, uh, excellently done show. And that's not to say that I'm, it captures the attention and it's, it still allows you if, I'm, if it makes sense to divide your attention, you know, I mean, you can yeah. do something else, yeah. but it doesn't mean that you're not fully engrossed in what you're listening to. Yeah. 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 Gee, someone should write a book called Semi Detached that's about that. <laughs> oh, yeah, you will. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, my uh, my partner, Lisa, um, used to drive home from work late and she listened to, uh, oh, God, uh, Ad Adam Carolla. Love, was it called Love Line or something? Love was Line with Dr. Drew. Dr. Dr. Drew. Yeah. yeah. And she, I would look outside and I would see her sitting in her dinky Honda Civic, just like, you know, still <laughs> listening because she couldn't get out. She had to hear what he was going to tell the 15 year old. And uh, oh, I know. Yeah, I always um, I really I I started listening. I mean, she really she hooked me on it. I was like, yeah. So was she your gateway into audio or did you already have um, sh other shows and it was just something you shared? I No, in fact, Lisa is funny about audio because she's she likes the immersive immediacy, but she mocks me because I've always been a fan of like, if I said the Foley man, does that mean anything to you? Like these these NPR shows with the sound effects like, oh, oh yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. the two coconuts <laughs> in the Monty Python yeah, yeah. that you bang two yeah. coconuts together like that. I'm a sucker for that kind of which we don't do at all in our podcast, obviously. Like our, our podcast is meant to yet. go straight to people's we cerebellum. We don't do it yet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That would be something. We could just have a kind of riffling pages soundtrack or. Oh, right. Yeah. The sounds of being smart. The, sound, <laughs> the sounds of bibliotherapy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Well, um, uh, Arthi, this has been great. Should we do, should we do some credits now to. Yeah, I think. 
You should do them because okay, I have them. I will. Okay, so as we approach the end of our season of novel dialogue, um, Arthur and I would like to thank the Society for Novel Studies for its sponsorship of the podcast and acknowledge support from Brandeis University, the Mellon Connected PhD program, and Duke University. Nai Kim is our production intern and designer, and Claire Ogden, who is just graduating from Brandeis University, congratulations, Claire, is our sound engineer. Please subscribe and rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. And please tell your friends about us. Uh, if you enjoyed this conversation, you should check out conversations with Martin Puchner, uh, with Teju Cole, uh, Helen Garner, uh, and Orhan Pamuk. Help me out here. Oh, uh, sure. Cameron, Lace, yeah. uh, Cameron Hurley. Um, Cameron Hurley, of course. Yeah. And uh, Madhuri Vijay and Ulka yeah. Jaria and Jerry Canavan and Michael Johnston and George yeah. Saunders. And George Saunders. Yes. Um, so from, um, so, I mean, Arthi, a pleasure. Thank you for this conversation. Oh, I look so forward fun. to season two very much. And um, thanks for listening. And we hope to talk to you all again soon. Bye.